I'm Pastor Aaron Shepherd, and you're listening to the sermon podcast of Union Congregational Church, a caring community connected through God, loving and serving all along life's journey. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10:15 a.m. in our sanctuary at 55 Rhodes Avenue, next to Bird Park in East Walpole, Massachusetts. You can also join us from anywhere online via our live stream by visiting facebook.com slash churchbythepark. For more information about our church and its ministries, visit churchbythepark.org. Now here's this week's message. The first scripture reading today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 48 through 52. This is near the end of the book in which Moses has reiterated all of the teachings of the law for the people of Israel. He has just finished his final admonitions to the people to obey and follow the law, assuring them that if they keep the law, they will be blessed in the promised land. On that very day, the Lord addressed Moses as following, ascend this mountain of Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites for a possession. You shall die there on the mountain that you ascend and shall be gathered to your kin, as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his kin, because both of you broke faith with me among the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, by failing to maintain my holiness among the Israelites. Although you may view the land from a distance, you shall not enter it, the land that I am giving to the Israelites. May God add a blessing to the hearing of this word. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew in the 28th chapter, the last Four, five verses of the chapter. Let's continue to listen for God's word for us here today. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But still some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, since... Approximately 1993, a man named Bob Whetstone has been present at every home game of the Boston Red Sox at Fenway Park. But he has never actually attended the game. He's never entered the stadium. No, Bob can be found outside on the sidewalks with a sandwich board draped over his shoulders, which proclaim messages like, Jesus is Lord. And heaven or hell, which is it? Bob Whetstone has gained a reputation as the crazy Jesus guy 
at Fenway Park, so much so that during the pandemic, there was a post on Reddit of someone asking, does anyone know, now that we're not gathering anywhere, what's happened to crazy Jesus guy? Now, most people are, um, you know, a bit put off by Bob's signs. His sign that says, heaven or hell, it's, it's your choice, has, has pictures of people drowning in a lake of fire on it. It is, is graphic and, and a little uh, violent. But the thing about Bob is that he is unashamed of the message he proclaims. He is there, uh, most people agree, out of the best of intentions that he really cares about the salvation of people's souls. On the other hand, there's a day notoriously known as Sin Awareness Day on college campuses. Uh, It was organized by a number of uh, conservative Christian groups over the years, and uh, it took place at, at UMass Lowell back in November. And on Sin Awareness Day, people show up on campus, and again, they, they proclaim the gospel. They, they admonish the students that they must repent of their sins and turn away from vices that these folks believe are condemned by God, vices like uh, sexual immorality, homosexuality, etc., etc. And Sin Awareness Day was written up in the campus newspaper and described simply as an annoyance. The student said it was at best an annoyance, at worst it was harassment. These folks who would show up and and holler at people as they passed by that they were going to hell, that they must be saved, that they must become believers in Christ. And I think, to some extent, folks in more welcoming or inclusive communities of churches tend to be a little uncomfortable with this kind of direct confrontation with people out in public. The idea of evangelism is not one that often comes up in the description of what we do here at church. Yes, we care for one another. We love and welcome as Jesus taught us to love and welcome. But but evangelize? Mm -mm. No, we don't do that. And there's, there's good reason for this discomfort. Of course, the, the words of Jesus here in the Great Commission, as it is known, to go forth to all nations and baptize in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, these words have been behind and, and sometimes in front of the historical legacy of Christianity's associations with empire. First with the Roman Empire beginning in 385 CE, But then in the Crusades, when European kings sent armies to the Holy Lands to take back those lands for Christ, it continued in the modern period with the colonization of the Americas, the doctrine of discovery, that the church was going to go forth and bless the efforts of European powers to take resources from this new world they had discovered, and that they would go forth baptizing folks into the faith, often at the end of a musket or a bayonet. So there is good reason to be uncomfortable with this history of evangelism. There is good reason to be uncomfortable with the idea of standing in front of people with a sandwich board depicting lakes of fire and judgment. 
Jesus doesn't say anything about that when he says, go forth. All he says is to go forth and make disciples. Oftentimes, evangelism is is considered the same thing as proselytizing, converting other people to, to your way of believing. It's what the children thought of when they heard this words. And to some extent, that is what evangelism is. But that sort of proselytizing tends to evoke just as much anger and contempt as it does sympathy and persuasion. And I think it can be disappointing sometimes that the people who seem most authentic in their faith, most unashamed of the gospel to be believers, that those folks, that those folks are presenting this picture of Christianity that does sometimes make us feel ashamed. And it's sad, I think, that all of those students at UMass Lowell, the only experience they have of a kind of public Christianity is being yelled at on their way to class. Isn't there an alternative? Well, I think there is. I think there is a way to be evangelists that Christ calls us to, a way to do it without being either annoying or hateful, To be an evangelist is, first and foremost, to proclaim the good news. This is how, in the longer ending of Mark's gospel, Jesus gives the disciples his great commission. He says to them, go forth and proclaim the gospel to all the world. Here in Matthew's gospel, he says, go forth and make disciples of every nation. How do you do that? Well, he gives two instructions. You're going to baptize them and then teach them to heed all that Jesus has taught. So how do we go about doing that? Well, we know how to baptize people. We do that here in the church, do we not? And I say we because it's not just me. Yes, I get to put my hand in the font and sprinkle the water on the cute babies. And that is a wonderful privilege that I get. But baptism is not something that the minister does. Baptism is something that the church does. A baptism is first and foremost a cleansing, a redemption of someone from their sin. It is a visible sign of this invisible grace that God has. And again, this is typically how your evangelist might think about baptism, that their goal is to get someone off the street and under the waters of the font so that they can be redeemed into Christ, so that their sins as an individual can be washed away. But that's not all that baptism is about. Baptism is about naming and claiming an individual as God's own. There's a reason before we baptize anyone, be it a baby or an adult or anyone, we ask them their name, what their Christian name will be. Even when it seems a little ridiculous, like when I had to ask Whitney what the Christian name of our son is, I know what it is. But we had to say it out loud because in naming something, it, it gives us a certain kind of power. This comes out of the Hebrew tradition in which God is the only thing that has no name. God is I am who I am, the power over which all other things are named. But what God gives to us 
it says in Genesis, is the power to name. And in naming, we, we mark individuals as who they are, as God's own, as bearers of God's grace that comes before all else. Because this is the one thing that's wonderful about being a parent. It's a little daunting, too. But before a child is even born, before they have the chance to become their own individual, you have the opportunity, the privilege, the responsibility, indeed, to give them a name, to lay some claim upon who they will be. In naming a child, we don't just name them as an individual, we name them as a member of Christ's own family, baptized into that family of faith, baptized into Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And this is typically what we think of when we think of baptism. We think of welcoming someone into the church, welcoming them as a part of this community of faith. And of course, it's not the same as our family, but it's also not the same as so many of the other social organizations we are a part of. We are members of social clubs, we, we are uh, students at schools, alumni, employees. We have all sorts of social memberships, but there is nothing like being a member of a church. It is a unique community. This past week, uh, a good friend of mine named uh, Dick Doring passed away at the age of 91. He lived a long and full life. He was my confirmation sponsor many years ago. And I will sadly miss him. And I was reflecting about how much it meant to me to have him in my life. And then I thought to myself, how many people in the world have the experience of being mentored by someone as a teenager and then growing up and sitting in the choir next to them and becoming their friend? Becoming friends with someone who is 60 years your senior. Being treated as equals, as just another member of the family. Where else but church does that kind of relationship grow and blossom? And so the church baptizes, the church welcomes. But of course, it is not merely this church that we welcome children into, but the church universal. The church of Jesus Christ that has been in every age and will be in every age, no matter whether this building falls down or this congregation disperses to other places. The body of Christ is alive, whether it is in this building or elsewhere. It will continue to live. It doesn't rely upon us to do so. And yet again, we have the privilege of being a part of that, of standing in the place of the wider church in making promises to be present to a child. Oftentimes, baptism is treated as something conventional. It's just what you do when you have a baby, when you're a church-going person. It's the right thing to do. But baptism is not a convention. It is a covenant. It's about being set apart from the norm. And I think that's especially true nowadays when church is increasingly less and less frequently a a relationship that people have in their lives. Baptism is not a numbers game either. It's not about how many members we can add to our roles. It is about welcoming who comes. It's about receiving those whom God calls. 
there's this temptation, I think, when we hear Jesus' admonishment to go into the world and make disciples by baptizing them, to adopt all the stratagems of the world, to adopt the advertising and the marketing, the branding, to, to have this robust outward-facing uh, uh, ad campaign, basically, to recruit people as though we were any other social club. I know I, I, know I felt that temptation. I have before. I thought to myself, you know what this church needs? We need, we need signs in our yards that say, meet me at the church by the park. Wouldn't that be nice? I thought, ah, oh, it's a great idea. But you don't teach people to be disciples of Christ with a yard sign. You don't show baptism by slapping a bumper sticker on your car. The old hymn says, they will know we are Christians by our love. And so baptism isn't just about the sacrament that we perform at this font. It is about how we embody that welcome, that forgiveness, that grace, and that relationship, that covenant throughout our lives. To accept the Great Commission is to accept a way of living that does not conform to the realism of the world, but to the deeper reality of God's grace that lies beneath it. And so we baptize, but we are also called to teach. And here's where the NRSV does, does us a bit of a disservice, because it says that we should teach all those who are baptized to obey all that Christ has commanded. And that is an acceptable translation, but it is a little harsh. A better translation might be that we are to teach these folks to heed what Christ has taught. To heed what Christ has taught. Jesus said to his disciples just before his death, I no longer call you my servants, but I call you friends. Because you are no longer under my commandments, you are no longer here to obey the law, the only commandment I have is to love. And love can only happen between equals, between friends. Of course, we are used to lessons and teachings about how to live from the mountaintop. That's why, that's why the pulpit stands up here above all of you, so I can teach you to obey the commandments of Christ. And we see this, of course, in Moses going up on the mountain and rehearsing the whole law back to the people in Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy has a very tragic ending. It ends with Moses there on Mount Nebo, looking out at the promised land, the land he has been talking about all this time, the land he has been assuring the Israelites that they will go into and they will prosper and they will be blessed there. And Moses gets to go up on the mountain, and he gets to look in. But God says he does not get to go. And do you know why he does not get to go? It's because a while back, there was a moment when the people were dying of thirst. They were coming to Moses complaining that they, they needed water. And so Moses did what Moses usually did, as he went to God and said, God, I need help with these people. I need to bring them water and so God said, okay, go to this rock at Meribah and speak to the rock in my name and the waters will come. And Moses went to the rock 
But instead of speaking, he struck the rock with his staff, not once, but twice. And the rock broke open and the waters poured out. And so the people drank, the people were quenched, everything was hunky-dory once again. Only Moses, Moses had not done what God had commanded. Moses had chosen a violent means to achieve the good end that God had provided. The people had their thirst quenched, but, but it had been by the wrong means. Jesus over and over again teaches the importance and the value of nonviolence, of not returning harm for harm, of not striking out in anger or desperation, but to be patient and to wait upon the Lord. And so what we see in this story is the costliness of trying to achieve the ends of evangelism, of proclaiming the kingdom of God by less than kingdom means, by trying to fulfill the goals of Christ to save without embodying the spirit of Christ in how we go about doing that. It's not one or the other. The means and the ends are the same. As Brian Stone, who's on the faculty at Boston University, says, our ethics as Christians are our evangelism. How we live is how we proclaim the good news of God. And so the Great Commission is a call, a call for commitment to the way of Christ and not just to changing minds or getting people to believe the right thing. Importantly, it says there were 11 disciples gathered there on the mountain, and and they all worshipped Jesus. But some of them still had their doubts. Some of them didn't have it all figured out. Some of them weren't sure what to believe about this whole resurrection thing. But they were all given the same commission. They were all told to go forth and follow Christ and make disciples in Christ's name. And so commitment to Christ's commandments, commitments to this mission of Christ in the world doesn't mean having it all figured out. It doesn't mean you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt the truth of Christian doctrine. But it means that in your word and in your deed you can show forth the way of Christ, which is something very different from the way of the world. A way that is humble and inclusive and nonviolent and kind and beautiful. The example of what not to do here is Moses at Meribah, to say whatever means are justified by the ends. Kingdom ends require kingdom means, and the goals of the gospel cannot be achieved without heeding the way of Christ. And so, from the beginning of this Easter season, we have been hearing that resurrection means being alive in a new way. And so Jesus sends out his disciples into the world to be alive in a new way, to be different from the world, to commit themselves to living differently, to embody the gospel, to be faithful witnesses to the beauty of the good news of Christ, and to welcome and to help one another to heed the teaching of Christ all along life's journey. Amen.
Thank you for listening. I hope that God's word has come alive and blessed you today. If you want more information about Union Congregational Church, once again, feel free to come and visit us on Sunday morning or online at our website, churchbythepark.org.